Hey, Unladies, this is an Unladies Room Patreon bonus episode. I am bringing y'all, because frankly, I had so much fun a couple weeks ago diving into the history of the original Little Mermaid and why it was a much bigger deal than I realized and also contained more subversive feminist undertones than I knew of that I simply had to share on the main feed. Now, have I seen the live-action Little Mermaid? Yeah, I have. I saw it, though, after this episode came out. There are no Little Mermaid spoilers, and let me know afterwards what you think about Ursula as feminism. Enjoy! Hello, dear patrons. It's me, Kristen. A little bit of not-so-breaking news. I'm sure a direct result of last week's Patreon episode, Elizabeth who shall not be known as Liz Holmes, is on her way to prison. A judge ruled that she does, in fact, have to report to prison in the next 30 days and pay out something like $470 million plus dollars to uh, people who were suing her for those bad blood tests. So, you know, um, I have a feeling that Liz and her husband, Billy, are probably just drawing up schematics right now for how she will launch her empire from a women's prison in Texas. Okay, I don't really want to dwell on that because also, uh, you know, uh, prison sucks. Okay, okay. (laughs) That is the sound of me veering away from an unnecessary diatribe, and into Ah, ah, Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. Okay, obviously, I have not seen the live-action Little Mermaid, but since it is coming out next Friday, I had been thinking of doing a rewatch of the original, the original animated film, that seminal undersea film. Um, And initially, I was thinking, why don't I do something a little bit different? Rather than doing a recap of The Little Mermaid, I could do like a watch-along commentary. Essentially, I'd watch the film and just record my commentary along the way. That way, if any of you dearest patrons also want to watch, you can time up the start of The Little Mermaid and listen along, kind of like a, uh, you know, a real ramshackle Mystery Science Theater 3000. That is not, however, what I'm doing this episode, because on my way to potentially rewatching this movie, I realized, oh my gosh, 
there is so much Little Mermaid significance and unladylike discourse that I, I need to sift through first. We've got to talk about this. Although I'm, I might still tape a watch-along episode to pair with this one, because I guarantee you, by the end of this conversation, I will have fully convinced myself, and maybe even you, that a rewatch is absolutely in order. Because also, I don't even know the last time I sat down and watched the whole thing, but as a kid... Oh, I knew The Little Mermaid by heart. I mean, in thinking about the ways that The Little Mermaid imprinted on me as a child of the 90s, honestly, I can't say it goes too, too deep. I mean, playing mermaid was the thing to do at the pool, and who among us did not want a seashell bralette uh, to really make our aerial dreams come true? That said, Ariel's wasp waist, that little slip of a thing, and her legs that did not touch, her very Barbie-esque legs, I, I definitely clocked it. Oh, I for sure clocked it. But when I think about The Little Mermaid and all of my watching and re-watching as a kid, what I really remember are the songs. I mean, who among us did not want a little Sebastian following us around? Um, I, of course, attempted to brush my hair with a fork at least once, at least. Now, Ursula did scare the bejesus out of me in that scene when she starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and things turn really dark, like, ooh, I was covering my eyes for some of that. Flotsam and Jetsam also kind of freaked me out. But in terms of earworms of Little Mermaid, what immediately comes to mind is, well, of course, Betcha on land, they understand that you can't reprimand your daughters. Bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand and ready to know what the people know. Okay, gotta rein myself in. Second, in close second to that, is Ursula's line in Poor Unfortunate Souls, where she talks about the importance of body language. And I'm gonna play a clip here because, man, see, it's not even taking the full episode and I'm already convincing myself I gotta go back and watch because I need to hear, at least right now, body language in context. And don't underestimate the importance of body language. <laughs> also, as a brunette, I didn't appreciate how it ultimately pitted redhead against brunette, potty Ursula, and oof, kiss the girl. I really, really wanted an Eric who may or may not have been gay to kiss me in a romantic lagoon. Although, you know there'd be so many mosquitoes. I mean, in a lagoon area like that. Maybe it's just my Georgia upbringing really coming out, but now as an adult, I just think, oh God, I would come out of it with so many mosquito bites. But perhaps a chaste kiss on the lips... But The Little Mermaid was way more of a monumental film, not only for the Disney Corp, but also in feminist pop cultural analysis. 
And I'm going to get to the feminist debate of it all in just a second. And I will go ahead and spoil this. There are layers to it that I have a feeling you haven't heard before. Okay? And if you have, wow, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. So our Little Mermaid story actually starts circa 1985. And for context, Disney was in a major animation slump, and its relatively new CEO at that point, Michael Eisner, was in full-on cost-cutting mode. Classic CEO executive moves here. I mean, it's kind of like why the WGA is striking. Like, Eisner was pretty convinced that animation wasn't worth the time or cost to keep producing. And he was pretty much ready to pull the plug on animated Disney feature films. And if he had, there would be no Little Mermaid, no Beauty and the Beast, no Aladdin, which actually I'd be okay with that. None of that would have happened. Then along came the Little Mermaid. Or maybe I should say, then along the Little Mermaid came back? Syntactically, that doesn't seem right, but we got to move on. Walt Disney himself first toyed with some kind of Little Mermaid animated feature in the 1930s, but the project never gelled. Then in the mid-80s, these execs, John Musker and Ron Clements, fished her back out and pitched it to then Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg in some kind of like, you know, spaghetti against the wall meeting Katzenberg had of just like, give me all your ideas. The Little Mermaid was one of them. Initially, Katzenberg was like, guys, 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 uh, come up with something more original. He thought it was too close to Splash, which had just come out and was actually in production for a sequel And I didn't realize that Splash was a Disney movie. So Disney was already knee-deep in Mermaid. Katzenberg was like, okay, like a kid's animated film? Uh... No, we don't we don't need that. We've got Tom Hanks. And fun fact, one of the reasons why Ariel ended up with red hair is to differentiate her from Daryl Hannah's blonde mermaid in Splash. But obviously, Katzenberg was eventually sold on The Little Mermaid, they moved forward, and they were able to convince the writer-producer-composer duo Alan Menken and Howard Ashman to basically come up with the whole thing. And Menken and Ashman had just come off of huge success with Little Shop of Horrors. And apparently Disney like really had to convince Howard Ashman in particular to come over that they would have like full creative license over the whole thing because Ashman saw Disney as super old school, like kind of a regressive, way too like authoritarian kind of vibe for him. And I'm noting this because we're going to get back to Ashman in just a few minutes. Now, even after The Little Mermaid gets greenlit, Katzenberg thought it was too much of a quote, girls film to make much money at the box office. Yeah. Obviously, Katzenberg was wrong. The Little Mermaid took four years and more than 400 people to make. 
It broke box office records for animated films, and it marks the start of what's known as the Disney Renaissance. Some people go even as far as to say, like, The Little Mermaid saved Disney. It saved the whole corporation. That might be a bit of an overstatement, but it definitely saved Disney animation. It was commercially successful. It was critically acclaimed. It even won Oscars for Best Original Score and Best Original Song. Did you know that Under the Sea is an Academy Award winner? Under the sea, darling, it's better. Down where it's wetter, take it from me. Is that a song that's actually about conolingus? I'm sorry, that was very inappropriate. So I just had no idea that this 1989 film really set the tone for the next era of Disney. It was both... Old school enough in the sense that it was the first animated fairy tale since Sleeping Beauty, which I think came out in like the late 1950s. They were bringing back the fairy tale because, of course, The Little Mermaid is based on Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid, which is much darker. Ariel never gets the prince. She dies by suicide. Like, Ursula is not nearly as flamboyant and thrilling as she is. Like, they, they lightened things up and, of course, gave it a happy ending. And pretty much as soon as it was released, even though, yes, a ton of people were loving it, the feminist debate commenced. I would say at this point, it's almost a trope of like the feminist critique of Little Mermaid. You know, young woman is willing to give up her voice in order to marry a prince at 16. That is one thing. That is one thing we, you know, you just can't scrub away. And I have a feeling they will address in the live action Little Mermaid is that Ariel was marrying off at 16. We did have a child bride. Anyway, and then, of course, the only strong female character with complete autonomy is an evil sea witch. Yeah. The hot take, obvious, and I did get a kick out of just just how quickly young feminists were like, what? what? Who made this? Who made this film? Uh, there was a piece in the LA Times from 1989 headlined, Diving into the Little Mermaid Sexism Issue. It starts, at a USC screening of The Little Mermaid the other night, A young woman asked the co-authors and co-directors, in a tone that could be characterized as civilly indignant, whether a woman had been consulted in the creation of the script. And, of course, the Disney guys were like, oh, yeah, there, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, We've gotten this question before. And, yes, we can assure you there were women involved in the creation process, which was probably PR speak for, well, yeah, I mean, there there were some women hired, you know, on our animation teams, certainly. Um, But Halle Bailey herself also echoed a version of this well-trod feminist critique in an interview earlier this year with a magazine called Edition. She said, I'm really excited for my version of the film because we've definitely changed that perspective of Ariel wanting to leave the ocean for a boy. It's way bigger than that. 
It's about herself, her purpose, her freedom, her life, and what she wants. To which I will say, I mean, as far as, like, her freedom, her life, what she wants, I mean, she was 16, and what she wanted was that Eric. Okay. And we will get back to that. At the time, however, and at this moment in Disney's animated filmography, this really was the first animated female lead who actually had a voice. You know, I mean, Sleeping Beauty is sleeping half the time. Snow White, I mean, she's, there's not a ton going on up there. Whereas Ariel, at least, is kind of a full person or Merson? <laughs> In his initial glowing review of The Little Mermaid, Roger Ebert said, Ariel is a fully realized female character who thinks and acts independently, even rebelliously, instead of hanging around passively while the fates decide her destiny. Because she's smart and thinks for herself, we have sympathy for her scheming. In a lot of ways, like, you could definitely argue that Ariel walked so that Elsa could run, right? And we gotta remember, too, that The Little Mermaid was the product of men across the board. I mean, the original Hans Christian Andersen, your writer, directors, your executives, like, all of the main decision makers who invented this entire world, brought it to life, like... It was guys who were calling the shots, tip to tail, to which Roger Ebert also observed in his original review, something seems to have broken free inside all of these men and the animating directors they worked with. I love that. I just, it just kind of made me laugh of like, something seems to have broken free inside all of these men. Meanwhile, like, Ariel... Is she liberated? And also, hats off to Roger Ebert for at least keeping his description of Ariel age-appropriate and respectful. Because the men who really get the ick awards for this are the film critics. The other film critics, I should say. The LA Times's Michael Wilmington said, Ariel is a sexy little honey bunch with a double scallop shell bra and a mane of red hair tossed and tumble out of bed Southern California salon style. She has no gills, but when she smiles, she shows an acre of Farrah Fawcett teeth. Whoa. A sexy little honey bunch? Take a cold shower, Michael Wilmington. Over in the Boston Phoenix, Jeffrey Gantz called Ariel sexy but sympathetic. Why does that need to be a but? As if it's mutually exclusive. And finally, Orlando Sentinel's Jay Boyer said, Ariel is sympathetic and in her little bikini top, rather sexy. Okay, gross, gross, gross. Ariel is fucking 16. Ariel is 16. See also Child Bride. And she looks like a girl. Now, does she have a tiny bit of cleavage in her double scallop shell bra? Yes, but enough, <laughs> enough with the misogynists. There is deeper to dive. This is the part where, <laughs> talk about a whole new world. Nope, that's fucking Aladdin, Kristen. Oh, man. <laughs> Oops. 
I must now direct our attention to a Smithsonian Magazine piece originally published in 2019 by SUNY Ulster history professor Michael Landis, headlined, The Little Mermaid Has Been Subverting Expectations for Decades. And Landis writes, The film offers a nuanced, layered critique of gender, sexuality, body dysmorphia, and even politics. I was like, wait, what? Okay. Landis pinpoints old Howard Ashman. Told you we'd come back to him. Writer-producer Howard Ashman, a gay man. Also, remember, this is the 80s when he is making this film. He is fresh off Little Shop of Horrors. The AIDS epidemic is starting to really spiral out of control. And... As the mastermind, really, behind the Little Mermaid universe, quote, Ashman saw the film as an opportunity to advance a social message through the medium of family entertainment. The last thing Americans would expect from Disney was a critique of patriarchy. But sure enough, Ashman's The Little Mermaid is a gutsy film about gender and identity, a far cry from the staid Disney catalog. So, okay, here we go. How is that possible, you ask? I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes, okay? This is the Cliff's Notes, Little Mermaid, radical feminist, subversive tale, all right? So Ariel, Ariel lives under a mer-patriarchy with no agency. Being trapped underwater and wishing for land is allegorical to being in the closet. She meets Eric When she rescues him from drowning, okay, role reversal, she then seeks refuge, of course, when her dad is like, no, like, you gotta, like, marry another hot, ripped merman like me, and you gotta do everything I say, and I'm gonna have people follow you and make sure you stay in line, and she seeks refuge from the only strong female character in the sea, Ursula, whose side note is not an octopus. Did y'all know this? Ursula has six, not eight, six tentacles. Why doesn't she have eight? Because they were trying to keep the animation budget as low as possible. And those two extra tentacles, it was just simply too expensive. I'm not even kidding. So uh, Ursula, not an octopus. Love that. And speaking of Ursula... Howard Ashman famously based her on the drag queen Divine and in the number Poor Unfortunate Souls. What she's really doing there is giving Ariel a gender 101 lesson. There's a 1995 essay. I tried to find the full text of it. I could only find excerpts, but it's by a scholar named Laura Sells, and she writes, In Ursula's drag scene, this is Poor Unfortunate Souls, Ariel learns that gender is a performance. Ursula doesn't simply symbolize woman. She performs woman. Ariel learns gender, not as a natural category, but as a performed construct. And all caps, how about this, y'all? In the Smithsonian piece, Michael Landis even goes as far as to say, quote, in short, Ursula represents feminism, the fluidity of gender and young Ariel's empowerment. Ursula represents feminism. I'm buying it. 
I'm totally buying it. And then what does Ariel do with this opportunity of empowerment? Well, she chooses her choice, right? She chooses her choice of becoming human and marrying Prince Eric, who, side note, Eric just does really exude sort of a low-key privileged homoeroticism. You know, we're, we're not getting much smoldering heterosexuality from Eric. And there's a good chance that since he's a prince, he's going to need to marry a woman. So maybe it's not such a bad thing that, you know, Ariel was a child bride because chances are he's not going to want to consummate anything anytime soon. So maybe her being young, like, can kind of like, push that off down the road for him while he goes on a lot of seafaring journeys with his handsome friends. Or maybe I'm mixing it up with some fanfic that I have yet to write. And finally, of course, when Ariel's bridal destiny is compromised, the men kill the strong female character slash evil sea witch. And not only that, she is killed with what scholar Laura Sells calls a conveniently phallic trident. Not to be confused with the gum. I mean, <laughs> like, I have to rewatch. I have to rewatch just to see it through this lens. Like, originally, and by originally, I mean about four hours ago, I was thinking, I just want to go back and see... Yes, what the overall depictions are. I do want to see just how tiny that waist was. And I really want to sing along to all of the songs, not including A Whole New World, because as we just learned, that is in Aladdin. But I love this whole other spin on it. Like, it's almost... Satire is probably not the correct term, but it, it it feels like, is is there a bit of, like, feminist satire in here? Because, of course... Ursula as embodiment of feminism. She is Ursula is Judith Butler, y'all. Ursula is Judith Butler, and what is more terrifying to both mer patriarchy and human patriarchy, but someone who is calling out the construct that is gender and threatening to fuck with these men's power, and of course they gotta kill her. Um, and because of commercial reasons, because of capitalism, you know, <laughs> Disney had to give Ariel a happily ever after. And I have not seen the sequel. Apparently there is an animated sequel. And I don't even think I ever saw it as a kid. I was like, Ariel at 30? No, thank you. <laughs> and that, dearest patrons, is my feminist Little Mermaid story. What do you think? Do you want to do a rewatch? La 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 la. Don't be shy. You can just comment. I, you gotta leave your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to wrap things up because I need to go find a clean fork to brush my hair. You know, got to stay in and, and fork my hair. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. And that is the bonus on ladies. I hope y'all enjoyed and consider becoming 
an Unladies Room member by going to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. You can join for $5 a month or more. And I would love to hear your Little Mermaid memories, thoughts, revelations. If you have them, send them. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me your voice memos or emails. You can also DM them to me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Until next week. And don't underestimate the importance of body language. Ah!